Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening.
Joe Bishop, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Dan. This should be fun. I look forward to our conversation. Your son, Ben Bishop, who is one of my best friends, has been on this patron feed, I think a couple times now, actually. So people might remember Ben. We we did. And then we did an episode on the main feed, I think, about why I was still a Christian. And Ben interviewed me for that. And then there was an earlier one on the patron feed about orthodoxy. I think this is more in the depolarized reconstruct days, but it's all it's all back there. If you guys want, you can go track those down. But Joe, so I've known about your work for a while now because Ben went to school to become a therapist and he's not doing therapy anymore, but you have been doing therapy and you were doing pastoral counseling before that for decades. So we, we've sort of been in a little bit of touch, but then you sent me this really interesting email. I presented an academic paper thing at the Christian Association for psychological studies with my spiritual abuse scale. And you wrote me an email, you being one of, I don't know, maybe 10 people who <laughs> who watched it. Those things are not very big audiences, especially compared to things like the podcast. But you said there is a real lack of resources for people going through faith deconstruction in their 50s or older, basically older Gen Xers and, and boomers. And I thought, that's interesting. I haven't really thought about that yet. Obviously, I'm an elder millennial, and you know, I know that my listenership is mostly under 45, just from like the you know, Apple gives you some kind of stats that I am dimly aware of. So, what 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 do you see as missing, or what's been your experience, or is it your clients, or you know, just kind of set the stage for us. I'm 66 myself, so in terms of my own experience with my peers, and in my counseling practice, just hearing story after story from people who are not in their 20s or 30s, who are more 50s and 60s. This is a a powerful reality for many people. And I think that's just the starting point. This is not just a millennial Gen X issue. It is something that people are dealing with at all ages and stages of life. And I think that the disappointment, the disillusionment, the the challenges, the reasons are, of course, there's a lot of similarity, but I think there's also enough difference that the conversation that's, that's aimed toward millennials can simply not seem as helpful or relevant for, you know, the 60 year old person who has been deeply hurt by their church. And it's what they gave their life to. And it was their social network. It was, and now they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. It was their life in so many ways. And, and now they're lost. And I've heard that story many, many times. I'm talking from anecdotal evidence, but a lot of anecdotal evidence. Well, and, you know, just to that last point, you know, that idea of being lost, of, of losing your community, mm-hmm. um, two items that ended up on the scale, on my spiritual abuse scale, from a 66-item list. So only about half of them, a little over half, made it to the final scale. And there's one about sadness at the loss of my faith community. Mm-hmm. And there is another one having trouble navigating life outside my religious community, that one. So that is not the kind of thing I associate with a 30-year-old. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't think that a 30 year old would as much would have trouble navigating life. Like millennial, like we are pretty comfortable in the world, you know, and church for yeah. us by and large on average, we were less enmeshed in our faith communities. Right. We were younger. We hadn't been there as long. We have TikTok and Twitter and, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, a boomer who gets hurt by a church, the boomer evangelicals I know, many of whom either came to faith or renewed their faith in the early 70s as part of the Jesus movement, mm-hmm. that then became their primary community now going on 50 years or a little under that. And so that's interesting. And my sample, my median age for my sample is actually 39 and a half. So I got plenty of people that contributed to the scale who their voices are showing up maybe in some of these items. Mm -hmm. And I haven't at all until right now thought of those as like being sort of age determined or partially or influenced by age. And that's really interesting. Think about you came to faith one way or the other. You grew up in the faith, you or you came to faith in your early adulthood, and it became your family, and you invested in it. And then after 30 years or whatever or more, you encountered a huge wound or disillusionment, and you no longer are part of a spiritual community. And part of evangelicalism is people aren't taught how to think. People aren't taught how to navigate these kind of issues. So many people do not know how to practice the things that bring spiritual life and formation. They were never taught that. So now they're in their 50s or 60s or older, and they're adrift, and they don't, they don't have the tools. Are there different causes that the deconstruction ranks are swelling so quickly with young people, and it's... It's questions around sexuality and affirmation. It's questions around politics. Those are probably one and two. And then, you know, pepper in other things like science, uh, you know, sort of science denial. For the, for the theologically minded, there's sort of hell and, and uh, pluralism, people of other faiths, getting to know people of other faiths. Is that list different for people over 55? Yes. I mean, I think some of the same, of course, but I don't think near as much of it is about the doctrinal or social issues. A lot of it is about their children who are now adult children, and maybe they are struggling with that, or they have rejected the faith, and it really has rocked the world of their parents. And it's this huge disappointment. And in some families, that there's you know maybe a pretty healthy dialogue, and the adult children bring up things, and the parents are willing to listen and grapple with it and come to terms with that. Yeah, there's a lot about what their kids are experiencing that's that's valid. So they begin questioning things. I think it's a more relational, usually more relationally rooted than doctrinally or you know the the social issues. Politics is part of it. I mean, politics has been pretty powerful for a lot of people I know in my more my peer group, but I think it's I think it's that relational and especially when your adult children have no interest now in church, have no desire to be involved in a spiritual community. There's nothing about the faith that seems compelling to them and 
in the evangelical world in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there was so much about parenting and focus on the family and that subtle, sometimes overt, but often more covert message that if you do this really well, if you do this right, you're guaranteed to have your kids turn out right. You're guaranteed to have and judgment and shame then in the evangelical community when your kids aren't walking with the Lord, you know, that that phrase. So there's a lot of that that's been disruptive for people my age and deeply disappointing. And some parents, of course, have just doubled down on the, the certainty and what they believe. But some have been really disoriented by by the fact that my kids have no interest in church. And that's caused them to question a lot of things. So I would say that, but I would also say just being hurt by the church. The longer you're in the church, the more chance you have <laughs> to be disillusioned and hurt. Right. So just direct harm by church structures and church leaders and, and stuff like that. Yeah. That parenting thing is really interesting. My dad, who I think you know my dad, do, yeah. he tells a story of every time that Bill Gothard uh, would come through town on his speaking tour with his, you know, super fundamentalist, super rigid parenting scheme, then they would set their calendars and about six weeks later, I think is the way he tells it. Six weeks later or so, he and all his Christian therapist friends would start getting calls because basically it would not work. And so then they would resort to a therapist or a counselor, right, for whatever's going on with little Johnny. Mm -hmm. Do you remember specifically something like that as well? I mean, I've been a pastor in the most conservative part of America, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Dutch, and Santa Cruz, California, the... Yeah, Bill Gothard, Basic Youth Conflicts Institute. He was one of the, wow, he was a big deal in the evangelical church. I think uh, the Jesus and John Wayne book talks about him some and how influential he was. Yeah. And that pressure to do it a certain way, that pressure to, and if you do it right, if you're faithful as a parent in following, you know, this formula, your kids will turn out. And it did not work. So when I think of those sort of really prescriptive how-to manuals for Christian parenting, Gothard, Focus on the Family, and Jim Dobson, what I'm thinking of that now is like, oh, shit, what an incredible amount of anxiety there must have been that these products spoke directly to and sold a cure for that anxiety, a sort of certain cure. But nobody was talking about that. I think that's right. I think that's true. But that was that was pretty unspoken. You didn't share in your adult Sunday school class about your struggles with anxiety because it, it just it felt like you weren't managing your household well or something like that. So I think that was certainly present. And it's based on a view of God that is anxiety creating anyway. It's, you know, it's based on this view of God that you have to get it right or you're not going to be blessed. You're not you're not going to be in God's favor. God's not going to use you. You're going to miss out all of that. So, sure, a lot of anxiety, but people did not talk about it in that way. 
they didn't talk about, you know, anxiety or depression or how to manage that or cope about that was there was shame around that. And if your kids weren't doing well, you know, there was a lot of guilt and shame around that. That has changed. I think I think it's much better now than it was in the 80s and 90s. I was just thinking it's got to be it's essentially whatever you think the motivations were for the Dobson Gothard stuff. Mm-hmm. Whatever your sort of psychological mechanism is, you can just copy paste that onto purity culture. I just guarantee it's the same thing. It is whatever the anxieties were, it's the same ones. And I think, you know, one thing that's come up in my conversations that I think is maybe underlooked is AIDS. I think that AIDS was freaking people out. And and I understandably, it, from a certain perspective, uh, it's a new thing. It kills everyone, it seemed like at first anyway. Yeah. You know, and then and then a decade later, a lot of that phobia around that was still there even though science had progressed quite a bit further and that's its own interesting Sort of question sure. of why did these leaders keep milking that anxiety even after there was much, much better information? Yeah, I, I will just say that I remember the 80s, the early and mid 80s when AIDS was a big deal and how the church community responded to it with such judgment. Just that's the word that comes to my mind, just just unabashed judgment and fear, you know, that evangelical conservative Christian world was homophobic. I I think that that's a true generalization. I do think another factor today for um, boomers who are deconstructing faith or their church experience is, again, their own children who are gay or lesbian and or, you know, struggling with, you know, maybe I'm not the right gender. And that leaves parents feeling isolated because what do you do? I mean, most of the resources in the evangelical word, world historically have been support for other parents, which is not a bad thing, but support yeah. still with the idea that this is not something that can be God honoring or, you know, that it's outside the realm of acceptable behavior. One of the things I just want people to hear is if you're in that age category and you're struggling with these kind of things, you're not, you're not unique, but I mean that in a positive way, you're, you're not the only one struggling with this and there are other people and there is help available, uh, but it's probably going to be outside the evangelical world. It seems like if you're in an evangelical context, of course it's church to church And some churches have a bit more leeway than others. Mm -hmm. But what I think you often end up with is essentially the same choice that like a Jehovah's Witness parent has if their child wants to leave Jehovah's Witnesses. You can either shun them and keep your church or you can accept them and be exiled. So if your kid comes out as gay or trans or something, right? And you know, there are exceptions to that, and, and some people listening will say, well, I go to a pretty much an evangelical church where that's not quite the case. But I think by and large it is. And that kind of choice, that is an insane choice for a parent to have to make. Uh, you know, my son's only two, but I'm already just like it's giving me goosebumps to even think about having to choose something like that. Yeah, I think that's – it is an either-or choice. 
it has been and continues to be for many people in the evangelical world. You either embrace your your child and just practice unconditional love with your child at the loss of your spiritual community, or you continue in your spiritual community and your relationship with your child is deeply affected, if not broken altogether. And, uh, you know, there's people at all points along this spectrum. But again, as a true generalization, I think you're right. It's an either or deal. Well, and to to put that in conversation with the thing that we were talking about earlier, that difference between a boomer and a millennial, for instance, speaking as a millennial, you know, we left our church of 10 years and it was kind of hard, but it wasn't that hard. We didn't move cities. <laughs> we yeah. just stopped going there because it had felt like, ah, this is not the right fit anymore. But I'm a millennial. Like I have lived in multiple different cities and states. I am more mobile. I'm more used to being mobile. Your son, one of my best friends, he left our city eight years ago or whatever. And I just drive down and see him. Like if I had been a Jesus movement person and at 23 find the purpose for my life and then at 53, my kid is gay and I have to choose, that is different than being – a millennial who's like actively applying to jobs in other states 20% of the time, you know, like that, w- there is a real interesting generational difference there. Some of my clients right now, I mean, there's one client where that's pretty much the situation. There's another client where they were in the church leadership, exactly what you described really came out of horribly dysfunctional family backgrounds, found a church. And I mean, dove in and this was their family. And then it's a highly authoritarian church and they, they had the temerity to question something that the senior pastor was doing. And that was it. Mm. You leave and nobody contacts you. The people that you thought were your friends, the disappointment of was any of that real? Those are the issues. Some of the issues that I think are just deeper for someone who's, yeah, 55, 60, 65, and it's just been more of their life. And so the regret and the guilt and, you know, back to the parenting thing, oh, I, yes, I raised my kid in this way of thinking about God and the Bible and church. And there's just a lot of regret and it's hard for people to deal with that on their own. They need support. They need community. They need to be able to tell their story. They need, they need therapy. They're not quite as prone to seek therapy or be vulnerable in a group as somebody that's 28, let's say. Yeah, in a sense, it's, it is more sad because of that lack of tools. It's, it's almost like people taking advantage of anyone is bad, but taking advantage of senior citizens feels especially bad. You know, it's kind of – it has a little bit of that sheen to it, not that everybody in your generation is a senior citizen – uh, well, getting, close. <laughs> getting close, but yeah, boomers who are 58, yeah. you know, they got, got, got seven plus years, depending on where you want to draw. I feel like 70 is the new, is the new senior citizen cutoff. It's everybody's getting older, lo- living longer, but you Thank know, you. 66. So, <laughs> <laughs> but like, because of the, the generational difference, yeah, there, there's sort of a lack of internal tools, 
a lack of the normalization of seeking out of services, mm-hmm. therapy, or even just the kind of one-on-one, you know, processing type conversations that, for instance, we always encourage our, our trauma clients to be doing, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. there is a there's an inbuilt diminished capacity for cultural reasons that are not a result of people's individual choices that then impacts the fallout of this harm. The disorientation of it takes time and takes a toll. And sometimes for people, they just, they just give up. Hmm. They just give up and they, it's like, I don't even know what I believe about God anymore. And the Bible. And, but if you'd have asked them 20 years ago, they could have told you with a great amount of certainty. So there, I think the relational, the parenting is often the, the first step, but then if you let yourself start thinking about it and start being honest about the disappointments and just the reality that how has my life really changed? What and then the political thing for for you know I I know the statistics of white evangelicals being seventy percent you know voting for Trump or whatever it is higher 80, um, 81. <laughs> 81 and then seventy nine I think was twenty twenty might have been eighty three but then you also have some dropout from people identifying as evangelical because of Trump and so it, right. consider yeah. them roughly the same yeah, yeah. well. I mean, it's not like all those people who dropped out or who didn't vote for Trump are 25. There's a there's a lot of people who that was a final straw or just a, you know, a disillusionment that was like, okay, I I can't be part of this anymore. On top of all these other things, it's usually a cumulative group of experiences. One thing that's interesting, you said earlier, something that is mathematically true. The longer you stay in church, the more time you have to be harmed in church. Now, I'm going to get a little weedsy here for people, but the, the way that I developed the spiritual harm and abuse scale was I had like 66 prompts and each of them said, please indicate the extent to which you've experienced each across your lifelong church or Christian group experience. Mm. So lifelong extends out the timeline if you've been in church longer. So Mm -hmm. you might be less likely to say often or all the time. So that's one caveat. But other than that, we would expect if everybody had the same attitudes, the same language, expectations that older people would report more because they've been around longer. Mm -hmm. And yet what I find is the younger you are, the more likely you are to report this stuff. And I think that that is not an indication of whether or not it has happened to older people, but would would they call it that? Now, interestingly enough, this is not like, were you abused? That would be obvious then, okay, young people are more likely to say it. But a lot of this stuff is just like being expected to consult my pastor before making non-religious decisions. And I wonder if an older person would be like, well, I don't know that I felt expected to, you know, like, and a younger person would go, yeah, that guy expected me to. So there's, there's something interesting about, we experience what we expect to experience. And a younger person has more language around 
coercion, abuse, power differential than an older person does on average. I wonder if you have anything, you know, any thoughts around that? Because that, that was an interesting finding. Well, I would guess, I mean, I would, uh, I would wonder if some of it is not just, it feels so disloyal. Hmm. It feels, it just, it's hard because I'm talking now in a negative way about this thing that I gave so much of my life to, and it feels disloyal. It feels disloyal to God even. And so they're just not going to report it in the same way. They're not going to be as forthcoming in terms of identifying, yeah, what I experienced really was not okay. What I experienced was a form of trauma, a form of abuse. I was, you know, I wasn't sexually abused, but I was emotionally manipulated and abused. And I just, I would suspect that there's some level of just maybe tiredness too, of like, I, I just don't want to, I just don't want to grapple with it. But I, I would suspect that the disloyalty thing was part of why they're reporting differently. It's so strongly ingrained that the, yeah. the evangelical language, the evangelical mindset, if it's the water you've been swimming in for decades, it is, it feels so bad to, to now be negative about it. You don't have to be in a obviously authoritarian, abusive leadership church to have felt a lot of pressure and to have gotten a lot of direct messages that you need to stay in this marriage. Okay. You, you need to you need to trust God, stay in this marriage, learn to be submissive. I've heard that so often. like more you have permission you can become a patron at patreon.com slash dan coke that link is in the show notes patrons get at least two additional episodes per month exclusive to them as well as access to the patron only facebook group which is an awesome little online community for talking through all the crap that we are thinking as our faiths and our lives change um, it's a great great community so again, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, five bucks a month, uh, support something that you care about and join the community. Back to the episode. One of the things that does change doctrinally, right, when you get into a more deconstructed type of a space is egalitarian versus complementarianism, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea that these husbands and wives, maybe God does not see them differentially at all in really any of their roles or abilities other than simply their personality differences or, you know, giftings, which is evenly distributed across genders. What have you seen along that axis as, let's say, a 60-year-old evangelical wife sort of is awakening to her agency. How is that different than a 30-year-old wife or single woman awakening to her agency as she goes through faith deconstruction? And, you know, us two, we'll just hang out here and describe women's experiences in, you know, with complete certainty. Obviously, we can't do that. But what have you seen maybe in aggregate from, from female clients? 
again, I think this is one of the issues that the adult children of baby boomers have just discarded and have just like looked at their parents, maybe looked at their moms and said, what, why did you go along with this? Mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of it. I mean, I'll just say for me personally, one of my biggest regrets is I, our kids grew up in a church environment that didn't have women, you know, pastors, didn't have women elders. Women were not seen as of equal value. So the 60-year-old woman who's now grappling with it because their kids are discarding that, it's painful. I think it's one of those areas where the where the regret and even the shame can can be pretty strong. So if you're 30 years old and you just like not just but you maybe you did, grew up in an evangelical culture, you went to a church where there weren't weren't women pastors and leaders and in your 20s and 30s you realize that's that's wrong. That's just wrong. You can embrace that and find a church community hopefully, and, you know, kind of, all right, I'm going to find a place that doesn't do that and it will value me. If you're 60 and you've spent your life in those kind of churches, you're basically saying, I drank the Kool-Aid. I, I bought the party line for, for my entire adult life. I raised my kids in it. And it, it can be overwhelming. It can be pretty overwhelming. That's my next question that I have here is like, is there a specifically like a, a culpability angle for my parents' generation that, that that my generation doesn't feel? Because like when I learn about purity culture, my friends didn't come up with that. Like none of my – no one in my circle is responsible for that. I mean maybe Harris. Joshua Harris, like he's about my age. I don't blame 17-year-old him for right. – you know, right. right. Like – I, I think he made some interesting choices after that and, and you know, leaned into it in a way that I, I think was wrong. But in terms of that initial, you know, the thrust of it and, and where these ideas came from, we were we did not have any power. And we were the young people in a situ in a um in a subculture that with, you know, something like fifty to seventy million um adherents had a ton of power. And yeah. I conceive of that as being a higher hurdle for a baby boomer to jump over to sort of start this process of deconstruction. Whereas for a millennial or a Gen Z, it's like, well, I didn't, I'm not responsible for any of this shit. So it's not, that's not a big hurdle for us. And I wonder if you have any experience around that issue. It's women's issues. It's egalitarian versus complementarian. It's race. Yeah. It's LGBTQ issues. Those three alone are enough. We can stop there and just say, if you really start coming to grips with the system that you've been part of, you're going to feel guilt. And part of the healing and part of the conversation I think people need to be having is like with all issues of guilt, you, you need to work through on a pretty deep self-aware level. What was my part? What was my complicity? What did I do? And what's within my power to, to make amends for? And what isn't? What do I just ask forgiveness for and change? But it's hard and it's painful and it takes work and it takes perseverance. And so most people don't do it. 
let me just say this too. Yeah. The tragedy of that is where are then the models and the mentors and the guides for people who are younger, who want a different kind of spiritual community? What, I mean, I'm 66 and I, I resonate with Brian Zond, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with him yeah. as an author, oh, yeah. but you know, one of his things is, Hey, my mission in life now, he's about my age. My mission in life is to try and bring about a vibrant Christianity for my grandchildren, because there may not be a vibrant expression of the Christian faith in America. It's created all of this with my generation has created then uh, a lack of leadership in the age group of wisdom. There's a wisdom vacuum then for the 20s and 30s and 40s people to look to and say, I respect that person. I think one of the unspoken tragedies is it's there's just this vacuum of that generational connection and wisdom. You know, when we started at that church that we were at for 10 years, I was really I was really wanting a couple older men or women, you know, in their 60s or something when I was in my mid late 20s, I actually talked to a friend of mine still, he was one of the associate pastors. And he was like, man, I know what you're describing, and I know there are a handful of people here with gray hair, uh, but none of them are what you're looking for. <laughs> and and I was like, well, that's a bummer because yeah. I moved to a city of 3.2 million people at a vibrant church of 300, 400 members, and there's nobody here that can mentor me that's 30 years older. You know, and, and some of that – so some of that's geography. Right. So that was in Capitol Hill, Seattle. It's like right downtown, essentially. And yeah. so if it was in Bellevue, perhaps that would have been different. My favorite episode of You Have Permission to date is episode number 123 with Heather Griffin and her her sort of schema for this as it relates to what we're saying now is that basically white evangelicalism in the States replaced the sort of deep, thick maturity of Christ-like discipleship, the kind that, you know, folks like Dallas Willard uh, mm -hmm. and others have been promoting all along, mm -hmm. and replace that with a sort of capitalism, respectable capitalist citizenry sort of a view, which is like, okay, if you are married, respected in the business community, and a white male, then you're good, and you get your maturity badge as long as you can hey, as hey. long as you can explain the 15 to 20 most important bible facts and how they connect to each other then you're in and the world is simple knowledge is easy and these are the trusted men and mm -hmm. what she talks about is that that creates a very low ceiling of maturity cuz mm -hmm. who are you looking to for an actually exceptional life or even a more than minimally mature life. And if a church doesn't grow those people and doesn't encourage those people, then not only will those people be less mature and therefore when their kids come to them with this stuff, they are more likely to just double down on the Trump train mm -hmm. because they're not mature. And that's of course not true for everybody and people have their various stories, but you know, going on her sort of rubric. And then secondly, even if they do, 
who are they looking to? Because now they have to find people from other traditions. And I think this is why people like Richard Rohr and they or they rediscover Thomas Merton or Henri Nouwen or something. They find Catholics and Anglicans. You know, it's Billy Graham who Billy Graham seems to have been a pretty good guy. He also seemed to have like pretty much kind of stopped changing <laughs> after 40 years old or so. I mean, like, you know, there's some interesting info about his very late years and maybe even if some of that was sort of suppressed by the family because it was embarrassing as he was his art heart was sort of expanding out. But he's not an example. He's not like a Catholic saint. He is not a Thomas Merton or an Henri Nouwen or mm. what I used to think Jean Vanier was, you know, so that was a lot I put out there. I'm sure you're going to have thoughts on some of that. How I encounter that in my practice, my therapy practice, is that people's idea of the life that they want, their their picture of a flourishing life, the good life, if you want to say it that way, is more American than it is Christian. Yes, we have a way of looking at fulfillment and what we want our life to be that is so American, that's so watered down, so consumerist and comfortable. And so in therapy, if you want to help people change, the question of but what, what kind of change are we looking for? What is the life that you want is actually a big question. And it's a, it's a hard one with long-term Christians because I'm sounding more harsh than I mean to. I don't sound very compassionate. I do have compassion. I'm, I guess my, my energy is about the system. My energy is about the, 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 you know, the, just the way we have allowed the, the church to be as a whole. And I don't claim to have all the wisdom, but uh, at all. I mean, my mistakes are, are huge, but I, I think that's a fundamental issue. And I think Heather Griffin's right. We've, we've plugged in something that's not Christianity and called it Christianity. And then when you're trying to counsel people and help them grapple with the loss of their faith and the direction of their life moving forward, they're not trained to think yeah. about it. I'm not as sociopolitically liberal as most of the other people in the kind of faith deconstruction world. And mm -hmm. I don't even think there's anything wrong with like figuring out how to become a modestly respected citizen in your community and make a comfortable living and, you know, go to your kids' baseball games and whatever. It's just that when that gets equated with spiritual wisdom, well, now we're fucked because what what we need for spiritual wisdom is the occasional person who can go farther than most of us are capable of going. And if they're pointing the way, even if we're not going to get there as yeah. the average citizen, I'm not going to get there. But at least my compass is pointed more or less north. If the person pointing the compass is just my peer then it's the blind leading the blind, essentially. It's not so much that we shouldn't aspire to be good neighbors, obviously good neighbors and civic minded and have good jobs and be generous. But when most of the elders in churches are elders because they're successful business people mm -hmm. and the, the metric for success that 
people have watched and seen applauded in their church was numbers and and growth and and again i just feel like that's that's more american than it is christian mm-hmm. I, I tend to think no church should be bigger than 150 people we're talking you know jaffrey and i but I, i'm finding myself feeling more and more like we will try some sort of house church type thing mm-hmm. where we rotate houses with a, a handful of families or i mean I don't know. I, I'm just feeling myself drawn to it might be time to try out another model. I, I don't know. And, and maybe not. Maybe we'll just maybe because we're moving in a couple of years and and maybe we'll find up in Bellingham like a great Episcopal church or a great Lutheran church or something. And, and we'll plug in there and it'll be awesome. Mm-hmm. But I'm also starting to think outside the box because of, yeah, just kind of feeling the issues and the, the mainline congregations have their own issues of a different sort. Well, let me just mention back to people in the second half of their life, deconstructing their faith and dealing with their disappointment and disillusionment with church. Um, I mean, this whole issue of patriotism and, you know, the conflation of Christianity and America it is something that it was just baked in when I was growing up. And, you know, you grow up as a kid, you just, it's like, it's a given. America is right. America is good. God is on America's side. And then as we all aged into the 70s and then the 80s and the moral majority is what kind of took hold that thinking, which is just a doubling down on the America's good and right. And we have to preserve that America. That's been the water that you swam in if you were in the conservative American church for all those decades. The point is the assumptions are so deep. I think about this with boomers in general, though, that like you guys have a harder hill to climb when it comes to plausibility structures and questioning them. Mm -hmm. Because your generation numerically for historical accident reasons is so damn big that – you know, chances are you've got 30 friends who look and are roughly your age and look like you and act and like your stuff who all agree on whatever you think, because there's just so many. And yeah, that's a good point. You can always find a crowd of baby boomers. <laughs> you can always find a crowd of boomers and every organization, every major corporation, every religious institution in American life since 1960 has been catering to you, at least in one form or another. Some of that's starting to slip and that is not your fault. Yeah. (laughs) Like it it isn't baby boomer. Baby boomers didn't choose that. Your parents had a bunch of sex after world war two. And of course they did. I would have too, if if I was coming back from that war and I would have wanted prosperity and I I would have wanted all those things too, if I had been born then. But where it becomes interesting psychologically is that idea of plausibility structures. Mm-hmm. And every Protestant denomination benefits from this because, because there are so many of them that it only works if people can believe that like theirs happen to get it right to the extent that they're making exclusive truth claims. And the boomer evangelicals are just like a – Transformers Megatron version of any old church or any old denomination where it's like, oh, there's like 70 million of us and we all agree that Christ is coming back any day. So I guess Christ is coming back any day. 
Because 50 million 20-somethings can't be wrong. Yeah. Obviously, you guys were wrong. And That's so cool. were all the people before you. But they didn't have the same plausibility structures that you had. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, that's a big part of the explanatory puzzle. But when somebody kind of awakens to the, the emperor has no clothes. Mm-hmm. This, I thought this. I was told what to think. This is what I thought. I did a lot of my life based on that. And now that is just challenged, and that's challenged hard. That's challenged hard by your your own children. That's challenged hard by painful experiences. People have to do something with that, and it's, it's, it's traumatic. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. It's it it is traumatic, and it's traumatic in a different way than the. Than for the for the twenty five and the forty year old, I really believe that it's traumatic because of how much of your life you bought into that plausibility structure. And I mean, this, you're told what to believe, and your pastor believes it, and he, this is what he teaches, and you like him, and church is growing, and so that becomes part of your belief system. Mm-hmm. You have not f- embraced that intellectually you you haven't grappled i'm, I'm just saying again this oh, i mean 97 percent of people never really grapple with their plausibility structures it's not yeah, the kind that, of thing that is top it, of mind yeah right so now you're grappling with it and it feels like that plausibility structure that has collapsed and you don't know where to go and that's why i have a heart for people in that situation and i I hope they'll get therapy. I hope they'll see, I I hope they'll name it for what it is as real trauma and real woundedness and that they will, they will seek help. Isn't the sort of going definition for trauma these days, it, it basically, it revolves around an experience that your mind can't make sense of, right? Isn't that, it's something to that effect. I'm probably getting that a little bit wrong. Actually, that's a good explanation that anybody can get. Yeah. And I think that's kind of how people are thinking about it now. It's like your framework for the world can't accommodate this experience. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it, that's a rupture. And then, you know, depending on your model, if you then don't process that, disruption and that letdown or whatever, then you can get PTSD. It's one of the ways that that can happen. But if we use that framework of it is an experience that your map of reality can't accommodate, then realizing that your 40 year long ultimate meaning, all your best friends, your hopes for your children, not just this world, but eternal hopes for your children Yes, your expectations, your your genuine eternal hopes, but also also that idea of, you know, getting your tank filled by how your kids are doing and basing your own emotional well-being on how your kids are doing. And that's a lot of people have done. So, yeah, that's a great way to frame it, Dan. It's trauma because the mental you know framework has been stripped away and if you don't deal with it if you don't face it i mean it's it's going to do more damage in your in your heart 
Well, Joe, I mean, I think that that this is probably a good place to wrap up. I I just want to say to you, I'm going to just call my shot here. Babe Ruth pointing to center left or whatever, maybe center right, probably because he was left. I'm a Cubs fan, so be careful there. Okay, he he's pointing at Wrigley over the you know to the apartment buildings, but I wouldn't be surprised if five years from now, one of the things that I'm doing is sort of actively and specifically focused on baby boomers mm. navigating spiritual abuse or mm. deconstruction. I feel like this conversation has me really excited and I'm wondering like, Oh, I've always gotten along with my friend's parents. Maybe I can finally put that to some yeah. concrete use, <laughs> but I, I really do feel I, my heart is breaking too for a lot of these things that you're talking about. <laughs> There's a flood coming. I think my generation is only starting to grapple with the deconstruction part. Wow. I think there's a lot more coming. I th- I think there's I think there's a tidal wave. We need people. You know, that's in, I'm going to keep it for just a little bit because that's so interesting. I think to protect myself psychologically and emotionally, what I have been operating on and assuming is that my not my individual parents, both of whom have sort of you know, never embraced Trump and, you know, have, Mm -hmm. have taken the last six years as an opportunity for growth, at least in, in that department without saying too much about my parents' individual lives. So that's been encouraging. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the, frankly, like when you were talking about, you know, people that we know personally, I, I was fortunate that the church that I was raised in and the families that my family was close close with my my uh, godparents who I'm very close with are you know they never embraced trump they you know my mm-hmm. my uh, godfather went from computer sales to now he is like an interfaith chaplain and reading mm-hmm. thomas merton and you know and so i actually do have those people in my life but in order to protect myself from the larger cultural climate and how it does impact me emotionally is I have just been assuming that most everybody is a lost cause in your generation and that, and like, like, you know, just to be cynical and and self-protective. And so I have not been assuming, I've been assuming that of course the floodgates will, will be even more full of young people because there's still plenty to leave. Although I don't know how much longer there will be plenty. And I have assumed, Oh, it'll go, it'll, they'll, they'll batten down the hatches culture war wise and the mm. boomers will be lost to us forever. And we will – most of us will have very sad funeral services for our parents mm. where we never really were able to sort of cross this breach. Mm. And it's interesting for me to hear you have a very different sense. And you're a lot closer to the ground on this than I am, not because of your age, but because of your work with clients and, and speaking with people in your circles so I actually want to hear a little bit more about that from you. Like what what's motivating that sense that they're actually, no, there's an exodus yet to come from older generations. Well, the evangelical church is not sustainable in its current model. So as that continues to change and break up, it's going to leave a lot of people struggling with what to do. So that's one thing. And I guess I just feel like for me, it goes back to the, the relational issue of like I, the hope for healing between in families, 
the more people enter into it, baby boomers enter into the therapy, group settings, you know, the practice vulnerability, get healing, think through what is what do they really believe now, um, the more good it will bring to the world. Because like you said, there are a lot of us. And um, <laughs> that's still true. <laughs> yeah, that's still true. So the yeah. potential for what can be done um, for the kingdom of God and what can be done in families is, is just, I, we just can't shrug our shoulders and say lost cause. And, you know, I feel yeah. that because it's, it's me and it's my peers. So, so, you know, many, many of my friends. So I, I've, there's a definitely an emotional component to that for me, but just a practical component of, um, what if this doesn't just turn into um, rubble? What if the collapse of this, these systems can turn into something better? And that my generation can be part of that and can, there can be, we can still be a generation of guides and mentors, women and men. That's, that's my speech, I guess, on that. <laughs> well, I love it. This was fascinating personally for me, Joe, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, I feel like stay tuned for more people. Cause this is, this has piqued my interest and uh, I, this is not going to be the last I think about the specific realities and challenges and opportunity of, mm-hmm. of working with boomers and even some, you know, anybody in the silent generation who's interested in deconstructing their uh, patriarchy I'm 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 here for it. I that might be too late for them. I don't know. Well, that's a cognitive issue at that point, perhaps. You know, yeah. but boomers are are not. I mean, it's not a. It has not reached a sort of neurocognitive stage where that's the best lens. I don't think. No, not not for most. Some, yeah, but not, not for some. Yeah, of course, people have health issues, but you know, your average boomer is certainly capable of change and and growth at yeah. this point in their life don't change until it gets painful enough. Yep. So if this pain in our, in our world, in our families brings about change, then that there really is hope for change. Cause there's a lot of pain. That is, yeah, that's one way to think about it. Well, it's kind <laughs> of, uh, the re- that's the reality. Most people don't change until something gets painful enough. So oh, no, for sure. Yeah, no, it's true. All right. Joe, wow, thank you. To be continued in some form or another. All right. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it very much.